Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend wherever you may be living, and I and I know for a fact that I'm glad to be back on the air with all of you. Uh, but then again, uh, I don't believe there's ever been a time when I wasn't glad to be back on the air. If there was, then all I can say is that uh, something wasn't right. But I can assure you that's never been the case, and nor will it ever be. Uh, but I will tell you this: uh, I am not only am I glad to be back on the air. Uh, but I do know that uh, we have a lot of ground to cover in this next uh, podcast series of um, The Fire of His Genius, or I should say podcast segment series, pardon me, to The Fire of His Genius, uh, Robert Fulton and the American Dream by Kirkpatrick Sale. What we will be discussing in this uh, podcast segment is um, is the, the big event, the big event of, that takes place along the Hudson River, but we will also be learning. Um, we will be learning what else takes place after the big sailing along the uh, Hudson River, because there's more to Robert Fulton than just um, sailing up the Hudson River and making history. Isn't it fair to say that we've learned a great deal about Hudson, I mean, about Fulton's life um, during a 20-year span in Europe? I would say so. We've learned uh, things about him that most of us probably didn't know beforehand, but we do know that uh, Fulton is on is a man who's on a mission. Um, that mission is one that um, probably may never end, because it all resonates within the fire of his genius. In other words, he's always coming up with new ideas. He's met rejection. He's been knocked down. He's gotten back up and done something about it. But he's, but he's one of those individuals who's um, never given up, which is a good thing. But at the same time, as, um, as brilliant as Fulton is, one must also wonder, okay, how far do you want to go with your ideas? Yes, you, yes, there are those who might like them, but there are those who are going to be skeptical of them. Isn't that the same way in today's time where we have people who are for something and then we have people who are against uh, something? Sure, that's what makes um, good debates. But for Robert Fulton, one might think of him as being someone who is, is a micromanager, wanting to do everything on his own. Yes, he might seek help, but he might be an individual who only needs help when he knows it's absolutely necessary. The bottom line is, is that Robert Fulton is a man who's on a mission. The fire of his genius stays with him through the best of times and through the most uh, challenging of times. But that fire of his genius is one that um, we have to wonder um, whether or not the fire of his genius has limits. And so far from what we've learned, maybe those fire, maybe those limits haven't really been. Um, been recognized on Fulton's end. But what we do know is that going into this uh, podcast uh, segment for tonight, Fulton is going to make history, and it's going to be for the right reasons. So our first uh, leadoff question will be the following. So let's get our seatbelts on and uh, let's get the show on the road. What momentous event, momentous folks being significant, so uh, what momentous, or I should say significant, event took place along New York's Hudson River, August 17th, 1807? What do you all think uh, took place? Now, something did take place uh, about a week earlier. That was probably what we would call the trial run. 
remember August 9th of 1807, Robert Fulton's uh, steamboat trial occurred. Now, just over a week later, we are now we have moved up from trial run status to now an actual run status. In other words, uh, we are now going to take this boat. We're going to take it from New York, well, we, New York City, up into Albany, the state capital. And then we're going to take it from Albany back down to New York City. So think of this as a round-trip fare. In other words, we're going north, and then we're going to come back south. So the momentous event that took place along New York's Hudson River of August 17, 1807, had to do with Robert Fulton's steamboat, what was the North River steamboat, departing New York Harbor to sail northward to Albany. Now, uh, how many days do you think this was done Was done in? I can tell you this much. It was less than five days. Was it an overnighter, meaning one night, or did it take two nights, or did it take three? The answer is choice B, folks. It was, um, it was done in two days. The uh, voyage from uh, New York Harbor uh, northward to Albany. It was achieved over a two-day course. And how many hours of travel time do you think it took, folks? I'm going to give you some choices. Did it take 25 hours? Did it take 15 or 32? You're going to find this hard to believe. I found it hard to believe myself, too, but there was a reason for why it took as long as it did. The answer is choice C, folks. It took 32 hours of travel time. Why would it have taken 32 hours of travel time? Well, let's keep this in mind, folks. Um, the people aboard uh, Fulton's boat, North River Steamboat, some of them were just everyday average Joe people who were probably wanting to um, relish uh, the history or relish this uh, mo moment of what of what lied at stake. But it might be fair to say that there were other people along this boat whom had uh, direct ties to someone uh, well-known that Robert Fulton himself knows. So, yes, it took 32 hours of travel time to get from New York to Albany, but there was a 20-hour layover stop at none other than Mr. Robert Livingston's Clermont Manor estate. So think about it, 20 hours out of the 32 hours it took from New York Harbor to Albany was spent at Robert Livingston's estate. Do you think it's fair to say that Fulton was showing off his North River steamboat to Robert Livingston? Absolutely. And and it is fair to say this because, you know, after all, Fulton and Livingston have been partners in this um, deal. Uh, Livingston has monopoly rights along the Hudson River. So I think it would be fair to say that Livingston is entitled to see his boat. He wants to see for himself firsthand that this boat made it from New York Harbor up to, um, up to I mean, where Livingston lives is just south of Albany. And uh, Clermont Estate is located in uh, Columbia County, uh, which is in the heart of uh, the Catskill region. But the Catskills are just south of Albany, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Catskills. But the bottom line is, is that Mr. Livingston, a.k.a. Robert Livingston, wants to see for himself firsthand 
that the uh, North River Steamboat did, in fact, make it out of New York Harbor. And plus, too, we got to take into consideration that, you know, we don't have cell phones back then. So it's not like Fulton could just send a text and say, hey, Robert Livingston, guess what? We're leaving New York Harbor. I don't know when we're going to be up your way, but we've just left. We don't have instant news like that, folks. But the bottom line is the breaking news is that Fulton did make it out of New York Harbor. And I do believe early on uh, in an earlier podcast, his uh, North River steamboat did have some issues once it left out of the harbor, but Fulton and his crewmen proved the skeptics wrong along the uh, shores of the uh, Hudson River waterway. So I can see why uh, being at the Claremont estate for about 20 hours was a big deal. Now, how long do you think it took return trip-wise from Albany to New York? Was it um, the following? Was it in 20 hours? Was it 25 or 30 hours? The answer is choice C. It was, the return trip from Albany to New York was made in 30 hours. But there was no 20-hour stop. There was only a, a one-hour stop at Claremont. So in other words, you know, Robert, Living, Robert Fulton wanted to prove to Livingston that, hey, look, I made it all the way up to Albany, and now by stopping back at Claremont, I'm proving that, hey, we are um, near the halfway proximity point to our final destination being uh, New York Harbor. Now, um, how many miles per hour do you think um, the steamboat uh, moved each way up from New York to Albany and from Albany uh, down uh, to New York? Do you think it went at uh, 10 miles an hour or do you think it went at 5 miles an hour? Or do you think it went at um, 7.5 miles an hour? The answer is choice B. The steamboat moved each way roughly around five miles an hour. That's not bad. I mean, you know, it's probably better than nothing, but the bottom line is the steamboat did make it um, from its starting point in New York Harbor up to Albany and back down. At five miles an hour, I would say that is a huge achievement for its time. Now, I can say this, though, that observers, if, if any of us were observers on this day of August 17, 1807, I'm sure many of the observers were excited, and then there were many who probably did have mixed emotions. Is it fair to say that, 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 that the observers along the Hudson River's waters, waterways were um, consisted of uh, people who were excited and yet skeptical? Absolutely. So observers witnessing the North River steamboat traveling, or I should say navigating the Hudson River, did indeed have mixed emotions. Those who were concerned and had some fear were worried that, um, that maybe a man himself was going in the wrong direction. And the reason I say that is because uh, prior to Robert Fulton's uh, steamboat invention, what had people been relying upon? The forces of nature, wind, you know, actual wind, uh, you know, the, the movement of wind to carry a boat from point A to point B, in this case along the Hudson River waterway. So for the skeptics or people who are just very uh, uncertain, the fact that um, man is now going to be relying upon non-nature forces to get up from point A to point B, 
there's no guarantee in their eyes that this could be successful long run, but at the same time, Robert Fulton has proven them uh, wrong and that a voyage was made up from out of New York Harbor to Albany and back. It did happen, folks. I mean, that was a momentous occasion. But for the skeptics, they were worried about what was inside the ship or the, or the steamboat. Well, what would they have been concerned about? Um, not just so much an engine, but the smokestack. Think about it. Smoke, steam coming out of the smokestack. They were afraid that um, that the um, that the uh, steamboat itself had the uh, potential of exploding along the waterway, leaving not only bystanders scarred by what they had just seen, but the loss of life in terms of uh, crewmen, including Fulton himself. So I could see where all this mixed emotion came into play not knowing whether or not Fulton's dream would come true, whether, you know, it would be one thing to have a successful voyage up, but what if it didn't happen coming back? So the bottom line is there was a successful voyage each way up and up and down the Hudson River, but the bigger thing for the skeptics was what was, what was going to become the new norm technology-wise. Whom did uh, Robert Fulton get introduced to on August 18, 1807 at Robert Livingston's Claremont estate? Okay, so, you know, we learned earlier that there was a 20-hour um, layover stop at Claremont. There might be something else in store for Robert Fulton, folks. He was introduced to Robert Livingston's cousin, Harriet Livingston. I'm beginning to wonder if maybe marriage is um, coming up, um, has, um, is foreseeable down the road here for uh, Robert Fulton. And think about this. If Robert Fulton has uh, partnered up with a fellow named Robert Livingston, who is uh, one of New York's most um, powerful uh, men in terms of his connections and just his status, wouldn't it be fair to say that he would want to go out of his way to do something for Robert Fulton? And that is introduce uh, a relative of his whom would be a good suit for Fulton. After all, it's one thing to do business with a man like Livingston, but his connections do go a long way. So yes, Robert Fulton was introduced to uh, Robert Livingston's cousin, Harriet Livingston, who was 17 years Fulton's junior. Robert Fulton, uh, by August of 1807, he's 41 years old. Harriet is 24. Now, I would say that's quite an age difference, to say the least, but hey, that's just the way it was. Although there were skeptics questioning Fulton's new boat, a.k.a. the steamboat, various accounts were published in the weeks after August 17, 1807, that had a more positive outlook. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having, with having skepticism about something, but we also need to have some uh, positive outlook on this because there are many people who are all for this. So those whom had a positive outlook on this were actual passengers whom, um, whom rode along Fulton's uh, North River steamboat en route to Albany were people from all over including the governor, came out to express support, as well as an account 
by Chancellor Livingston himself describing the general public's high levels of enthusiasm. Well, I'm glad that the governor came out, because if the governor doesn't come out, then that's not a good sign. If Robert, if Robert Livingston isn't going to write anything that's relevant about this, then then the state legislature could probably say to themselves, well, gee, we've we wasted our time sticking our necks out for this guy who um, who uh, reneged on us. In other words, you know, the New York state legislature folks, they were the ones that uh, granted Livingston this uh, monopoly. And, you know, it's one thing to have a monopoly, but you better have a boat that can uh, prove that you are worthy of a, of a monopoly. Uh, waterway monopoly along the Hudson River, not just short-term, but long-term. Uh, what decision did Robert Fulton uh, make shortly after the North River steamboat arrived into Albany on the afternoon of August the 19th, 1807? And this is a very, very significant um, decision that he made. And I think it's one that uh, benefited um, a lot of people. Robert Fulton went about making um, an inaugural, or I should say a maiden uh, voyage. Rather, I should say that the uh, inaugural or maiden voyage of his North River steamboat that went up from New York Harbor to Albany, when he arrived into Albany, he decided that um, on August the 19th of 1807, he decided that he wanted to turn this um, venture into a commercial business uh, matter. And by being a commercial business um, opportunity, he would be able to um, generate uh, greater revenue. In other words, if we're going to have this, this uh, steamboat um, this steamboat become one of commercial business, that means it's going to be transporting people permanently from New York up to Albany and Albany back to New York, um, vice versa. So in other words, it's going to need to be a business, a seasonal business, but one that's going to be around not just short-term but long-term. What I found interesting is that um, on August the 19th of, on August the 19th of 1807, Fulton um, placed a sign over the boat's side advertising um, fares, and not just uh, for the rate, but the service. That is, departuring, departing from Albany to New York the day after, being August the 20th, at 9 a.m., with a passenger rate cost, believe it or not, folks, of $7. I don't know how many people would have had $7, but it might be fair to say that those whom have $7 are well-to-do. I don't believe that most um, middling families or just people who are barely making enough in 1807 to get by um, are going to have this kind of money. Some people might even probably have to sell some items just to be able to afford a, um, a fare. But at the same time, I, what I did learn is that it was more than just going from New York up to Albany, there were stops along the way. Um, some stops included uh, going to what we now know as present-day Poughkeepsie, uh, going into Goshen. So there were some stops along the way. It wasn't just straight from New York to Albany. Uh, there were other stops in between. Think of it as like a modern-day uh, subway system, to say the least. 
Although uh, Fulton had achieved a great success in making round trip from New York to Albany and vice versa, did the event alone gather a significant amount of national attention? Believe it or not, folks, it didn't. I was kind of surprised by this, but at the same time, we also still have to remember that um, America still um, has a, um, a national hero that, they are, that they've been looking up to since um, 1806, and that was Meriwether Lewis from the Lewis and Clark Expedition, largely because America's um, territory doubled with the Louisiana Purchase, and now Americans are, are beginning to think to themselves, hey, once um, states get carved out of the territory from the Louisiana Territory, that will encourage people along the eastern seaboard to want to go further westward. So for Robert Fulton, yes, this is a major breakthrough in transportation and along the water, but it hasn't become at this point in time a huge national eye-opener. And the federal government didn't think it was necessary to have banquets, ceremonies, parades. Fulton's steamboat voyage, yes, along the Hudson River was monumental. However, did we learn uh, not long ago from a previous podcast that the actual mileage from uh, New York to Albany uh, via waterway was about 160 miles? Yes. That, you know, to me seems like a long stretch. But for Fulton's voyage, the voyage alone wasn't um, long distance. Of course, when I think of long distance along the waters, I could be thinking, you know, from point A to point B via the Atlantic Ocean, going from Europe uh, to America. But that's not the way it was, obviously. So Fulton's achievement in 1807 didn't fall under the category of revolution, largely because there wasn't an instant following right away by the majority of the American public whom were still clinging on to the past, that is, relying upon Mother Nature and getting to and from origin to finish. In other words, many people are still relying upon or wanting to rely upon Mother Nature's forces, like most notably with the movement of wind and getting um, somewhere from point A to point B along the waterways. They, and it would be fair to say that most people don't have access to, to an actual steam engine. If you don't have access to a steam engine, then it would be very hard to um, relate to um, what Robert Fulton has done. However, if you are um, caught up in the uh, steamboat craze of what, of what lies in store, then you would want to um, think all things... Um, what do we call it? You would want to think of all things uh, relevant or all things forward in terms of uh, what technology is going to have in store going forward. So, yes, I think what Robert Fulton did was monumental, but it wasn't monumental enough to where the federal government wanted to take it a step above and have banquets, ceremonies, parades, and uh, toasting him for what he, for what he had done. And there again. Um, this achievement alone did not fall under the category of revolution because there was not a um, huge instant following right away by the majority of the American public whom 
we're still clinging on to the past, that is, relying upon Mother Nature's uh, forces and getting from point A to point B. Now, we move on to September 2nd of 1807. Robert Fulton began placing ads for service runs going from New York to Albany and vice versa. That went into effect on September 4th. Now, September 5th, Fulton officially calls or names his new boat the North River Steamboat. Now, of course, I know it would be easy to say that the North River Steamboat you know, yes, the boat went up along the Hudson River, but it wasn't until early September that it actually became the North River Steamboat. But it makes practical sense because, number one, he's already made a successful voyage both ways. And because he's made a successful voyage, he now knows that he can take things to the next level. And that is by starting a business with this boat, but giving it a proper name, the North River Steamboat. So, he's um, definitely moving up in the right direction. Was uh, Fulton's North River Steamboat Service a success? Do any of you all feel that Robert Fulton's Steamboat Service will become a success? Uh, the answer is yes. The service started off strong and it ended, um, and it ended on a good note. But let me ask you this, how long did it, uh, if it started at the early part of uh, September, when did, did it end before 1807 ended? Yes, it ended um, around mid-November of 1807, and it wasn't because Fulton um, decided to just call it an end. Uh, the forces of Mother Nature came into play. The southern end of the Hudson River began freezing over. However, uh, prior to November or season's end, Fulton saw passenger rides go from 12 on his first trip to as many as 90 during most of October. So in other words, he was getting about 90 people per boat ride throughout most of October, and that is very, very significant. Fulton had gotten roughly 100 passengers a week per travel along the Hudson River, netting close to $700 in weekly income. I would say that is really, really good, you know, for starting out. And the best part is he didn't even, there were no sharks. He didn't have to go to what we think of in today's time as the Shark Tank TV show. So basically, it might be fair to say Robert Fulton is a, is the equivalent of being his own Mr. Terrific, a.k.a. Kevin O'Leary. What else was taking place in New York during the year of 1807? Does anybody want to know what could have been taking place in New York during the same time that Fulton has made uh, history? Uh, the state created a uh, streets commission, which sought to devise a grid pattern of 12 avenues that would elevate New York City's current status of commercialized city to where city leaders envisioned a grand triumph over nature in the same way Fulton had promoted his steamboat service along the Hudson River. So in other words, you know, Robert Fulton, think about it, the steamboat did not rely upon the forces of nature to get him from point A to point B. These, uh, the commissioners of New York City are, um, are trying to do something that, um, that has, um, as much significance as what Fulton did along the river, 
but it's also in their eyes all about triumphing over nature. You know, it's one thing for man to make progress, but even progress has its uh, limits. And progress, as great as it may be, progress has consequences. And I'm beginning to wonder, even at the start of the 19th century, is man becoming a, a bit hubris? Is man showing signs of hubris? What does hubris mean, folks? It means arrogance. Is man thinking that he is so inev- he is so dominant that nothing can stand in his way? Of course, every time, whenever I hear of man that saying man being arrogant or man demonstrating hubris, I'm always reminded of what happened with Titanic. You know, the the White Star Line um, officials said she was unsinkable. Nothing could happen to her. Nothing could stand in her way. But sadly, um, it was more than just an iceberg that brought the Titanic down. I will. I can even admit to you all, uh, based upon other documentaries I've watched on Titanic from time to time, that um, that Titanic had several internal um, structural issues that played a factor in um, bringing her um, down to where she uh, sunk to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. So the bottom line is, is that no matter what man does, and no matter how sophisticated something has been done, or no matter how sophisticated a proposal may be to, to do something that's so grand, man has to be reminded that he is not the most dominant force in the world. And even at the start of the 19th century, Man was running into this. Now, um, did Robert Fulton make changes to his North River uh, steamboat in 1808? Yes, the changes he made revolved around luxury. He wanted passengers to be valued, but also wanted luxurious items, materials, to be seen as something profitable where regular customers would keep coming back. So in other words, you're not just riding on a boat to get from point A to point B. You are Robert Fulton wants to see to it that you, the customer or the passenger, are going to get a first-class experience, and that means having uh, a room that might be the equivalent of what a first-class passenger on the Titanic would have had. You may not have a grand staircase, but you'll have enough amenities to be treated as if you were um, royalty or high-end society. April of 1808, the New York State Legislature voted to extend Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston's monopoly rights along the Hudson River for five years for every new boat each man placed in the Hudson uh, waterway. July 1808 saw Robert Fulton marry Robert Livingston's cousin, Harriet Livingston. In October of 1809, Robert and Harriet Fulton became parents to son Robert Barlow Fulton. Uh, Robert Fulton had a uh, business partner named Joel Barlow, whom he got to know very well overseas in Europe. And um, as a matter of fact, Fulton lived with with Mr. and Mrs. Barlow for periods of time in Europe. And um, so therefore, I could see how uh, Robert Fulton would have wanted to have uh, returned the favor to uh, Mr. Uh, Joel Barlow, and by naming his son not just uh, not only Robert but to include Barlow. 
What I found interesting about Harriet Fulton, given that she was her maiden name was Livingston, for one, she's no stranger to high-end society status. How so? Well, her father was a Livingston himself. Her father was Walter Livingston, being who was a cousin to the Chancellor Robert Livingston. Harriet's mother was Cornelia Schuyler, and Schuyler is spelled S-C-H-U-Y-L-E-R. When I think of Schuyler, I think of Schuyler County in New York, which was named after um, General William Schuyler, whom would uh, become Alexander, whom was the father-in-law uh, to Alexander Hamilton, um, and William Schuyler was um, a general in the American Revolutionary War. And there is a place outside of Albany called Schuylerville. So nonetheless, Harriet Livingston's mother, being Cornelia Schuyler, was a direct descendant of Peter Schuyler, who was um, mayor of Albany during the 17th century. And believe it or not, folks, the Livingstons and the Schuylers, not only are they related to one another, but they are also directly related to the Van Cortlandt families, as well as the Rensselaer families. If there is a place in New York State called Cortland, New York, there is Cortland County with a T at the end. But uh, the Cortlands, the Rensselaers, um, the Livingstons, Schuylers, then there were the Van Heusens. They were all directly related to one another through marriages. Uh, the Rensselaers, there is a college outside of Albany um, around uh, Troy and, uh, and uh, Schenectady, known as RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, named after Stephen Van Rensselaer, whom was uh, one of New York's uh, most wealthiest men during his time. All of these families owned uh, huge estates along the Hudson uh, River um, Valley uh, waterway. Well, but then again, it makes sense for uh, Livingston, the Livingston family with Claremont, where seven uh, generations of uh, Livingstons uh, lived there. So, yes, nonetheless, uh, it's one thing for Robert Fulton to marry someone, but to marry someone of a high-end uh, status is a big deal. And if it hadn't been for partnering up with uh, Robert Livingston, who's to say that Fulton would have married someone with high-end connections? It's one thing to do business with someone in high-end status, but to marry a relative, that just says even more, because your status improves as well. Well, in the next uh, four years after 1807, would Robert Fulton add additional steamboats to his service? Yes, he did. The steamboats after 1807 turned out to be longer and far more wider than what he first started out with. And while these larger boats did accommodate more passengers, the cost to build them exceeded Fulton's original expectations, cost estimates. So yes, if you want to build a longer and a wider boat, that's one thing. But if you don't uh, factor in your costs, or if you underestimate what those costs are, more than likely you're going to be operating more in the red than you are in the green. What do I mean by the green, folks? A surplus. If you're operating in the red, that means you're operating in a deficit. You know, deficits being shortages. In other words, if I'm operating in the red, how am I going to be able to come up with the money to get out of the red where I can stay in the green? So so you, we have to wonder, did Fulton experience any deficits? 
it, it could be possible, but if he was in, in any kind of deficit situation, I'm sure that the state legislature uh, would have bailed him out. Well, in mid-1809, Robert Fulton uh, did take the first steps behind steamboat operations along the Mississippi River. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, from previous podcasts, didn't he um, have some grand envision about wanting to go into the Mississippi River? Yes, he did. So by mid-1810, Robert Fulton gives the okay to a fellow named Nicholas Roosevelt. And I often wondered if Nicholas Roosevelt was related to uh, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. Of course, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt came much later. But it is possible that there could be a connection. Uh, the Roosevelts um, lived along the Hudson uh, Valley, um, along New York's Hudson Valley. So it is very possible. So, yes, Nicholas Roosevelt uh, went about starting on boat construction out of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the eventual destination would be along the Mississippi River waterways. It wasn't until late September, around September 27th of 1811, that Nicholas Roosevelt began a four-month journey along a boat called the New Orleans, which included navigating through um, a place in Missouri that was home to a uh, terrible, terrible earthquake in late 1811. Uh, the place in Missouri is known as New Madrid. It's not far from uh, the Missouri-Kentucky line, um, New Madrid is uh, somewhere south of St. Louis, and it's closer to uh, Paducah, Kentucky, which happens to border um, Kentucky, Missouri, and um, Illinois, and even uh, Tennessee. So this, uh, earth, this earthquake was a, um, a monster one for its time. It might have been somewhere close to about 8.0 or 9.0. So... Um, Despite navigating through what we know as New Madrid, Missouri, home to um, the 18, 1811 earthquake, um, this fellow named Nicholas Roosevelt did arrive into New Orleans on January the 12th of 1812. And the boat that, that he navigated um, into New Orleans, being none other than the um, boat called New Orleans, the boat was used for a route known as the Gulf Natchez route which ran daily routes between New, what we now know as New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, and uh, Natchez, Mississippi. So that's a good sign right there that, um, some, that Fulton's dream of um, navigating along the Mississippi did become um, an actual reality. But is it fair to say that even Robert Fulton himself has, has become someone who is now completely obsessed with monopoly rights? Of course, when we think of Monopoly, I know it's easy to think of that um, board game that's been around for a long time, but let's keep in mind that um, Robert Fulton wasn't playing the Monopoly board game. But is he someone who, whom is obsessed with, um, with control? Yes. Is he, is he so obsessed with control to where if someone tried to challenge his existing Monopoly that he would probably um, throw a hissy or... or be so angry that he would not be able to reason properly? Perhaps so. Robert Fulton constantly wanted to be above any competition that had potential to interfere 
with any or all current successes benefiting his wallet, a.k.a. profits from the Hudson River service. You know, um, during the early 19th century, there were no laws on the books that uh, regulated um, these kinds of uh, things. So if anybody had a monopoly, that's just what it was. It wouldn't be until the very late 19th century and into the start of the 20th century would laws go into effect breaking up uh, trusts, or I should say monopolies. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until Theodore Roosevelt became president that he um, would be the one who would go about breaking up uh, monopolies, most notably along the railroads. But we still have a ways to go before the railroads come along, but... Um, but let's just keep in mind that throughout throughout a good portion of the 19th century, there were no such things as uh, regulations on monopolies. Robert Fulton, as obsessed as he was with monopoly rights in general, he did miss out on opportunities where many eastern and southern waterways could have been home to North River steamboat hybrids. In other words, there could have been other service lanes that were the equivalent of the North River steamboat that ran from uh, New York to Albany and Albany uh, to New York uh, with stops in between. Had there been um, other eastern and southern waterway um, hybrid, hybrid uh, boat services that were you know, spinoffs of North River steamboat, can you, can you imagine just how much more uh, profit there would have been and is it fair to say that there could have been um, great, a, a greater chance of uh, better business partnerships that could have uh, established between Fulton and others? Yes, but at the same time, who's to say that Robert Fulton would have uh, gotten along with those other people? That's a whole other uh, topic onto itself for debate. But uh, the bottom line is, is that oh, the bottom line is, is that there could have been other service lanes. How about from, say, the Potomac River to Washington D.C.? You know, in other words, coming from Maryland to D.C., I mean, I will admit that um, during this time that um, Annapolis and Baltimore obviously are big port cities in Maryland. Um, before uh, Washington, um, before Washington, D.C. really becomes the hot spot for um, for uh, society's elite to be um spending more time in because even in 1812 there were many in Washington DC who didn't like staying there they usually spent more time at Georgetown Alexandria what we now know as Arlington Baltimore Annapolis they just went uh, where there was uh, greater um, events going on but the bottom line is there probably was boat service that went from, say, Baltimore to, uh, to Washington or Washington to Annapolis. But the thing is, is that um, had there been additional um, boat services like that resembled that of the North River, can you imagine just how much more profitable it would have been to have constant boat service from Potomac River to D.C. as well as further south in Virginia's James River um, surrounding uh, the present, uh, what we now know as uh, the capital of Virginia being Richmond, which has been Virginia's capital since 1780. So that's not to say that there was boat service 
in um, Virginia, most notably around Richmond, but it just wasn't perhaps as widespread as it was going from uh, New York to Albany. But there again, the fire of his genius might have um, allowed himself to be um, narrow-minded here. In other words, Fulton was only thinking about one way. He wasn't thinking about what he could do further um, south. And if he had thought um, a little bit differently, then maybe he wouldn't be so obsessed with um, monopoly rights. Well, what did uh, Robert Fulton go about lobbying for in Washington, D.C. as early as the winter of 1808-1809? Okay, well, do you think he is lobbying for more steamboat funding? Or do you think it is something that that we learned about from previous uh, podcast segments that is now coming to um, attention in a manner that has never been uh, seen before on uh, domestic soil? Yes. Robert Fulton is lobbying for congressional funding of his torpedoes, a.k.a. underwater naval mines. I thought all of that was beside us or behind us. I thought so, but I was wrong. Why is he lobbying for the uh, underwater naval mines? Well, no, he's got a. He, I think he has a legit reason for lobbying. Lobbying, when you when you lobbying when rather I should say when you are engaged in the act of lobbying, what are you doing? You are trying to find people who will support your proposal. You want your um, congressman to speak on your behalf and say, hey, John Smith uh, introduced to me a proposal that will actually help improve um, this uh, matter that's being, debate, that's being debated on. So basically, lobbying is an act of trying to uh, vouch for uh, someone to, to get broader support on something that's uh, being uh, currently debated on um, for all sorts of reasons. So for Robert Fulton, he is lobbying for congressional funding of his underwater naval mines, considering that Britain and France have been constantly interfering with American ships along the high waters. And they have, through acts of improper search and seizures, most notably impressment. What are Britain and France doing, most notably Britain? They are seizing American cargo vessels and taking our men because they claim to have a shortage of men on their side, and they are basically forcing us to fight for them against our own will. You know, we'd like to think that, hey, we've defeated, you know, it wasn't, it was 30-some years ago that we actually defeated the, the world's mightiest military, and why all of a sudden are they doing this? Well, they've been doing it for a while, and they're doing it as a means of saying, hey, look, you may have won your independence, on us years ago, but we could still prove to you all that we that we will remain the mightiest uh, power along the high seas, both present and future. Between the between fall of 1809 into the start of the winter of 1810, Fulton wrote a 60-page essay known as the Torpedo War and Submarine Explosions, including. Fulton's slogan that was on the title page, the slogan was, in quotations, the liberty of the seas, 
will be the happiness of the earth. I, I like the title, The Liberty of the Seas Will Be the Happiness of the Earth. It could be that maybe Robert Fulton, he wants there to be independence along the waters. He wants seafaring nations to be able to um, navigate the waters freely without any kind of interference. Interference from a European superpower whom has made America's life miserable, being that of England. It's one thing to feel that way, but what, is, what does Fulton want the ships to have? Well, his essay focused on everything positive about these underwater naval mines, which in his time are considered torpedoes. For Fulton, these naval mines were the best protective measures in defending not only just the ships themselves, but he also saw them as a means of protecting America's port cities from foreign attacks. So in other words, if, if uh, ships on America's um, docked in America's port cities can be um, equipped with underwater naval mines, then they have the chance of being able to defend uh, America's um, port cities from uh, any kind of what we now think of as a modern-day terrorist attack. So in other words, Fulton wants to see to it that, you know, that, that the port cities of Boston, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, New York City, Philadelphia, um, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, uh, just to name uh, many cities, port cities. He wants these port cities to be protected in every way possible because he sees something that um, isn't going away anytime soon. Fulton did have support, uh, most notably from the Jeffersonian Republicans, but uh, the Federalists did not support this. Even the United States Navy was opposed to Robert Fulton's um, torpedoes, uh, most notably uh, Commodore John Rogers. He viewed Fulton as a man whom was arrogant and narrow-minded. Commodore Rogers did not believe that torpedoes alone could prevent the American Navy fleet from being 100% immune to foreign boats along the high waters. So in other words, okay, if you do... Okay, let's say the boat along the waters is equipped with one naval mine, and you see an enemy ship coming at about 100 yards, and all of a sudden the captain says, let's get this vessel ready to go. As the enemy gets closer and, and you fire, and it misses altogether, <laughs> then you really are um, up a creek. It's bad enough that, yes, the enemy ship could impress your sailors, but if you misfire, then you don't really have a whole lot left to defend yourself with other than firing, um, other than having the use of cannons firing um, at the uh, enemy ship. So for Commodore Rogers, yes, it might be one thing to have these underwater mines, but it's not enough to prevent um, a foreign enemy from wanting to, um, to do something by surprise. Uh, what American hero died during the fall of 1809? His name was uh, Meriwether Lewis. He sadly died uh, and wasn't even 40 years old. I'm not sure what he died from, but it was very unexpected to say the least. But nonetheless, it's very tragic for many Americans, and it's also tragic for Thomas Jefferson. 
because you know Meriwether Lewis and William Clark um, conducted their uh, westward expansion during uh, Jefferson's uh, presidency, from uh, the fall of from uh, mid eighteen o four up until uh, fall of eighteen o six. So Meriwether Lewis's death gave rise to Robert Fulton's profile as being a new American hero, but not but not everyone considering most Americans had not fully grasped what the steamboat service would provide short and long term from a settlement and a commercial standpoint perspective. In other words, most people, you know, most people would have uh, thought about, okay, a steamboat may be transporting people, but not in the form of transporting people to where they're going to be establishing settlements in places uh, west, uh, going westward into what we now know as um, other uh, states past Ohio, like, say, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and then into um, other states like Missouri, uh, Arkansas. Uh, in other words, a, a westward uh, population movement that would be spurred upon by means of a steamboat, and not just for population, uh, for what do you call it, settlement um, purposes, but from a commercial standpoint, folks, a.k.a. commerce, how what's going to bring states together? I mean, you know, it's one thing to be adding states into the union, but it would be fair to say that uh, at some point, if you're going to add two states at a time to the union, one's going to have to be free, the other's going to have to be a slave state in order to keep the union um, intact for for maybe about close to 50 more years at best, or, or just shy of 50 years before the inevitable does happen. I mean, it, there were a lot of compromises that had to be made, but it was only a matter of time before something else would evolve that would not be for the better. Uh, Robert Fulton knew that he himself was an American success story, considering his background, given it was one of poverty and hardship, and it was as a child. It, it was, uh, given that his father had left no will, his father had uh, left things under not-so-good conditions. But the older Robert Fulton got, and thanks to the connections, new fortunes arose to where the quest for future achievements lied within the fire of his genius, one that um, that had no boundaries and one that had potential but even potential itself has to have a definitive game plan, and potential itself also has to know where to start and end, knowing that there can still be an end result, but an end result that will uh, benefit people and you as an individual, but, but would not yield any harm to those whom either have no say in this or to those whose lives would be altered forever. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be learning other um, important, uh, relevant information about Robert Fulton and the fire of his genius. Thank you again for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air. Uh, continue to stay safe wherever you may live.